0: we're recording sorry right, here we go back from london <laughs> yeah oh, London I just... was calling we answered the call and mm-hmm. we're back in berkeley mm-hmm. and it's uh mike schellembert layton woodhouse alex good how's it going guys good good welcome back thank you thank you was <laughs> it for you alex you have a good time in london
1: yeah it was really cool meeting a lot of very interesting people for the first time yeah
0: Uh listeners should know that we we split up a little bit. Some of us I we had like three teams working on censorship, gender issues, some COVID issues. Uh let's start with you, Alex. Who'd you who'd you go talk to? Who was interesting?
1: Norman Fenton, um, who's done a lot of data analysis on vaccine efficacy. And I didn't realize this, but he had three hundred peer reviewed papers uh before COVID started, which is a lot. Is that good? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it's good. That I mean, good.
0: Like someone like can fa- someone
1: can fact check that, <laughs> but,
0: <laughs>
1: um, And
0: while we and, were there, by the way, he was censored.
1: Yeah, and right after we interviewed him, I think he was giving a talk uh, completely unrelated to COVID, and they canceled it, uh, either a talk or a paper. But and he said that had been a pattern that happened to him um, after he commented, uh, not have uh, commented after he did, you know, rigorous studies and uh, tried to get those published, some of his other work, then he couldn't get published after that because he had been tainted by his vaccine work.
0: Right. And you guys interviewed him for The Censorship Files, which is the documentary, it's the working title of the documentary we're making right now. Correct. And yes. he came in, and nicest guy, I may mean, have chatted with him a little bit, but he is famous because he sort of shows statistically how, how let me see if I get this wrong, that... That while well, they say there's 95 percent efficacy for va- for the COVID vaccine, the real efficacy. All right, what are the two terms? It's relative and absolute. absolute. Yeah. So why don't you say what he finds?
1: Well, I please edit it out if I can't do it correctly. <laughs> but one of his main um, one of the main issues is that if you have a very low risk of getting a disease then you can compare the risk of if you got this uh, treatment uh, versus if you didn't, and that would be the relative efficacy. But it might be a very small absolute uh, efficacy if you only had a 1% chance of getting sick in the first place. So that's one thing he focused on. And another thing that he did, which I think is very unique to Norman because other people have... Also commented on absolute versus relative risk, but he explained why having the two week window after vaccination um, was v- before people were counted as vaccinated really impacted the statistics because just that two weeks, um, labeling everybody as unvaccinated before they hit their two week mark really affected the the figures that they got from the real world data showing high rates of efficacy. He lays it out really clearly with graphics in his videos.
0: And we, we, we're gonna have that, but um, it's a really amazing video. And he also inter- he also did an interview with Dr. John Campbell, who's a very well-known YouTube, British YouTube commentator on COVID who I've found really trustworthy and reliable. But the punchline was that like, they when people say it's 95% efficacy, that's referring to relative efficacy. And I believe that when he's the, the one of the, the first yeah. big Pfizer studies, it was when you got to absolute efficacy, it was less than 2%. If I'm
1: I think right. it's less than it's like 0.8%. Is the yeah. two
2: week thing because <clears throat> a lot of people were getting COVID within the two weeks after getting a vaccination and then were not counted as vaccinated COVID patients?
1: Yeah, but it, it doesn't even matter um, what the rate is if they just have the same rate as the um unvaccinated group if the unvaccinated group and the vaccinated within the first two weeks have the same rate of getting covid it will show higher rate of efficacy much higher rate of efficacy for vaccinated overall because they're lump- there's a chunk of people in that two weeks who are getting covid who are getting lumped in with the unvaccinated
2: oh so it's sort of putting its thumb on the scale in yeah. favor of unvaccinated people getting covid yeah huh because I remember there was a, I do, This is, like, the first time I've even thought about it for, like, a year and a half. But I remember that, like, after you got the shot, there was, like, a five-day period in which you were more likely to get COVID and so you're supposed to quarantine. Do I remember
1: that correctly? I'm not sure. Because it was, like... <laughs> I'm sure we're spreading medical <laughs> misinformation right now. Good thing this is not going on, on YouTube. The uh, information is rapidly changing, so... Yeah. I mean, I think...
0: Um, yeah, we've lost, like, half our listeners at this point because it's so confusing. But, I mean, it... it check out Norman Fenton stuff on YouTube I thought he was a very good visual explanation as well of how some of the statistical games were being played but anyway that was a highlight for you and certainly for me to meet him who else did you see
1: um we saw uh Silky Carlo the director of Big Brother Watch uh which was the first group that investigated and exposed the UK's counter disinformation unit and we also met Molly Kingsley who was one of the uh, victims of this unit who had been flagged by the counter disinformation unit as spreading misinformation when her posts were just things like we should open the schools and lockdowns are not good for kids, things like that. Um, we met Sinatra Gupta of the Great Barrington Declaration, and there's one more person, I think.
2: There were a couple more. There's a... Oh,
1: Claire Fox, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the great Claire Fox. And she even took us on a tour of the House of Lords. That was cool.
2: Yeah. Like private, like I don't even know if normal tourists get to go on. It's Baroness
0: Claire Fox, I take it. Yeah. Right.
1: Um, And
0: then
2: there was Ben
0: Scallon. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. The Irish Journalist. We had his podcast up already.
2: Uh Uh-huh. And um, Greg South, is that his name? Phil Shaw. Phil Shaw. Phil Phil Shaw, Shaw, yeah,
0: from from New Zealand. These are people you interviewed for the film, and then they came to this meeting Mm -hmm. we had last Friday on June 23rd to organize free speech advocates. But what I was going to say too about the what it was so interesting is that you go to Britain and you see these characters and you're like, oh, Molly Kingsley, that's like your Jennifer Say. And yeah. uh, Sunitra <laughs> Gupta, oh, that's like your Jay Bhattacharya. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean it because they're both Indian. It's more like they were both these sort of kind they, of they worked together. Yeah, yeah. They're sort of, but they're kind of COVID right. archetypes, you know. Yeah. Um, you know the frustrated professional mom, the the dissident yeah. jo- the doctor, the statistician. You know um, the free speech advocate, and we'll get to it in a bit. But the the it was very sweet, I think, to meet people Who, that we were. Who's hmm. hmm. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the UK's Michael Schellenberger?
0: I guess Michael Schellenberger is the UK's very kind now, at least. It was uh, a sweet experience because it was, it was me and a lot of people that whose work we had admired and we knew that we had these kind of friends that we were gathering from around the world. How about you Layton? What did you, do? who did you, what were the highlights for you at the whole trip? You were working hard the whole time.
2: Yes. I mean, naturally seeing you on stage was the highlight of my, of my <laughs> life. Correct answer. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was shooting. So, um, to be perfectly honest, I was only able to process like 50% of the information coming out of the interviews because I was worried about, you know, uh, shooting. Um, <laughs> is I'm, this I'm machine now, recording? Yeah, exactly. I'm now going through the footage, so so it's as if I'm hearing it for the first time. Um, but um, I think the highlight was probably going to Dublin, which was, mm. that was the first day and night. And why did um, you get,
0: why tell, tell everybody why you did that.
2: Um, because as um, public readers know, uh, Ireland is... Um, In the process of passing a truly jaw droppingly alarming um, bill restricting free speech, which basically allows you to, allows the government to um, enter your house, take all your devices if you have been suspected or if you've been accused of. Uh, having voiced hate speech and they don't define hate speech as anything other than what somebody else considers as hate speech. So it's like it's insane. Um, this law, it's just as crazy as, as I just described it. Um, and there's like it's going to pass. There's only like a couple of senators in their Senate, the Chinod, um which uh, who oppose it. Um, and then there's this one renegade, dogged, independent journalist named Ben Scallon, who has been on our podcast um who's fighting the good fight against it and he's i think more or less alone in that fight there might be like a couple other journalists who have chimed in but he's really kind of made it his crusade and so we we followed him around for a day um shooting him for the dock
0: did you guys interview did you interview like politicians or people on the street or what we both
2: we interviewed one one of those senators um came and met us um and uh and we interviewed her briefly and then and then we did some, yeah, some man on the street stuff. Um, uh, unfortunately, downtown Dublin is just full of tourists, so it was like, literally, like every <laughs> every three people, like we'd get one Irish person for every like four people we asked wow. to talk talk about it. Um, but uh, but we got some good stuff. Yeah. That's
0: amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um. And by the way, I, I, though I think it's thirty senators they said were against it. They oh, still think it? it's going to pass, go well. but it has the, they have moved. And then I guess it was on. I think it was on Sunday that the, ju- the attorney general, the justice minister of Ireland wrote this op-ed in the Irish times that her name is Helen McEntee. Mm-hmm. And she tweeted it out and Ben shared it with the group that we're on, the signal chat group that we're on. And, and then, and I just kind of quote tweeted it. And, Cause she was, the whole thing was we have to have more censorship in order to protect the vulnerable. The common good. The common good. And I, I responded to her and I was like, no vulnerable population has ever been protected by more censorship. They've always depended on more free speech to mm-hmm. uh, overcome oppression, mm-hmm. which I think is a, a point that we've started to make and maybe not enough. You know, Robert F. Kennedy does a kind of version of it, which is that, you know, at no point in history are the censors the good guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's worth pointing out, it's like you can't find a single movement of human liberation where it's like, yeah, we won because we were able to shut our opponents up. Yeah. So that did seem to have a that did seem to land and they said that having the foreign pressure originally came from both Elon and Jordan Peterson and but that tweet went viral and she was, I think as the kids say, properly ratioed <laughs> and had something like twenty retweets and like or whatever. Now it's probably like like I think it was like a thousand replies or something to her and they were pretty mm-hmm. hostile. So I think
2: well, this just proves her point. It's like this 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 argument is like the more Circular. she's attacked, yeah. right? The more she's like, well, yeah. clearly there's a lot of haters out there whose speech we need to throttle.
1: I think I mean what Ben said was that they do in Ireland care about international opinion especially and I think especially American opinion. So what what would I think flip it for them is if the New York Times wrote a bad article yeah. or something yeah. like that, not Elon or Jordan Peterson. Thanks, Alex. Jeez, (laughs) Ben has (laughs) Ben has
2: nothing but just. I hope he doesn't mind my uh, uh, airing his opinion on this, but nothing but just like (laughs) unadulterated contempt for these uh, Irish politicians. And his kind of diagnosis of it, which I thought was interesting, is that he was like, "Look, we were we we were a colonial power. I mean, we were a colonized nation for so long that now that we have our independence." there's this sort of like um imposter syndrome or inferiority complex or Mm. something where like these they don't basically the the government the the politicians of Ireland don't feel self-confident in their ability to be able to govern and so they kind of need to bring in this sort of like surrogate father figure surrogate like colonial power whether it's the EU Mm. or you know the United States or the UK and they just like uh you know and his this is his description not mine that they just like anytime somebody from a powerful Western country comes in and ask them for anything they just grovel you know and it's just too t- they totally need somebody pathetic. to be their daddy.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly I mean, daddy. I mean it's funny I mean because uh, well because in her op ed this justice minister Helen Magganty she says, Kind of goes well all these other countries are way ahead of us on this issue you know we're like ireland is like a is behind the times and everybody else is censoring more than we are we ought to be censoring a lot more and i was like no i assure you that nobody is trying to do what you're trying to do your your policy is absolutely insane so it's more like yeah it's like overcompensating or something right or proving mm-hmm. that we're, we're we're as censorious as the eu guys look you know
2: mm-hmm.
0: did we but well anyway we should probably move on um should we talk about London, the main events? Sure. Sure. We had a um, so super fun for me because I am just a unabashed fan of of Russell Brand. I thought his two Hollywood movies were absolutely hilarious, uh, Meet, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and Get Him to the Greek. And he's, he's he was a very huge famous Hollywood star. And then he did Arthur, which I think did not do as well, and kind of went back to Britain and. Kind of was quiet for a few years and then reemerged, I think, in a big way during COVID. And it turns out that he had done a deal with Rumble. And so they, he. the first thing was they invited me out to his place, a 500-year-old farmhouse in 90 minutes outside of London. You know, I was like, wow, the house is twice as old as my country. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, um, <laughs> but it was a sweet setup. I mean, a lot of, a lot of really talented people there. And I was kind of like, we should have this. We should, have, we should have a 500 year old farmhouse, yeah. <laughs> 90 minutes outside of berkeley yeah oh <laughs> uh, yeah i mean it was really uh, exciting a lot of young good talent he's they're really prepared i mean just a lot of research goes into the shows and but that was very fun and then and then we had our big night and uh you know sold out the downstairs and a significant amount of the balcony at westminster of course we as an as an american it's sort of my job to know absolutely nothing about Britain um kind of studiously ignorant of it and i was like <laughs> Westminster that's like a church right you know <laughs> and uh and it was like an what abbey or is? something so we it was in central hall westminster and we scoped it out in advance to kind of check it out you know huge beautiful organ it's this it's the middle of it's a church that's where the event was and i thought the other interesting thing was that like like cuz we're like our church and state like literally physically in Washington DC are se- are like separated from each other by a fair amount of space. Whereas Westminster is right next to the parliament. Mm-hmm. Like it's like literally like across the street. And that little area of London, where all a lot of the tourists are there, it's what is it, St. John's Park or? James. St. St. James's James Park. Park. Yeah. Um, it's a sweet area, we found ourselves a lot there. It's also, we had had this desire to go to London earlier this year and I thought, well, why don't we try to do a conference? And then it quickly became sort of political. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to choose. Like, I have to put people on panels and make choices between my friends. And that was like the opposite of it. So I had this desire to go. And then we felt like we needed to go because there was so much of the stuff in common around the censorship. And it was a great kind of place to to gather. And then Russell Brand agreed to do this event with Matt Taibbi and me. But I thought the event went great. and. Um, you know, it was a big turnout. I thought the energy was really positive and Russell was absolutely on fire. And I know everybody's been like, can we see the video? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Next week or she, depending Julian on the Assange's airs. wife made a cameo. She did. Mm-hmm. Stella Assange very movingly talked about how her husband, Julian Assange, which of course he's famous because he released a bunch of documents that have been taken from the defense department or have been mm-hmm. leaked by the defense video. department. And a very famous video of, a of a, of a pretty bad, uh, uh, collateral damage I think they call it it's Collateral, collateral murder. murder Yeah they're real subtle yeah. The Assange's <laughs> um, <laughs> But nonetheless He's facing a 175 year Prison sentence In the United States The Guardian has reported We have not verified But the Guardian has reported That there was a CIA That the CIA Considered killing him wow. I don't know how serious That is So I'm just telling you What the Guardian reported mm-hmm. I don't know if it's really True but Russell really cares about the case and he brought stella assange on stage and she spoke for a while and then she was also um had a protest event on saturday that matt taibbi spoke at but uh what did you guys think
2: about the event yeah i thought it was great went off without a hitch it was uh no mistakes were made at least no mistakes were made um uh, Francis, I'm forgetting his last name. Opened um, Francis Foster
0: yeah, from Trigonometry. He Foster. That helped, right? Shout. He warmed up the crowd, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: No, that was he was an essential part of the operation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: like last, like unplanned, last minute, and then because uh, Russell, you know, he's a big star, so you know, he kind of is a little bit late and everything, and so oh, yeah. he was like, we were like, go up there. For, he was like, how long? We were like, two, three minutes ought to do it, <laughs> and it was like. Russell was still in the bathroom we were like no oh, I was
2: I was um, <laughs> yeah I was I think I was maybe on stage shooting like while he was like and give a big hand of a to Michael, <laughs> Michael Shelmer Matt you be Russell brand and then I was like wait I went back like um, you're I don't know what you were doing Matt was talking to uh, to Tim Robbins, Tim Robbins backstage like mid conversation <laughs> Russell Brand was nowhere to be found like none of you guys knew that he was <laughs> that you're being invited no. on stage. Felt bad for Francis. It added kind of left though, to the. It added the humor yeah. watching him yeah. just yeah. squirm. <laughs> yeah,
0: I love that show. That's that's trigonometry. It's a great podcast mm-hmm. with Constantine Kizan and Francis Foster. Who's also there? Yeah, mm-hmm. and those guys are those guys are, are definitely um, headed in a very similar directions as Public and our friends of the show. And we should have them on. Yeah. Constantine yeah. also had a best-selling book called "An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West," and he's a mm-hmm. big defender of civilization and.
2: He did that viral video at um what's that debate society? Oxford. They have yeah, Oxford. Yeah, you yeah have you heard of
0: some some yeah. Oxford thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's <laughs> a name for a the place series. There's I think there's a university there is called Oxford. There's <laughs> another one. I think it's Keene something. I don't know. <laughs> there, there's
2: there's um, a I think there's a name for that speaker series that he did though, like yeah. the debate thing. Yeah, where he just crushed it.
0: Yeah. 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 Right on climate change. I think was right? it? Yeah. No. yet I just know. No.
2: I just remember the feeling. But they're mm-hmm.
0: liberal. These are these are. I would say they're kind of liberal critics of wokeism, and they're they're not easy to classify on left and right. So they're very classical like liberal. Maybe classical liberal. What is them?
2: What does classical liberal mean? Because like, to <laughs> me, it feels like that's another. I mean, libertarian. I, I hate to say that it's like code for far right because everything's code for far right. <laughs> but like classical liberal kind of hits me that way. Just like I mean, I guess it's because like Curtis Yarvin calls himself a classical liberal. And by the way, I don't know anything about Cur- Curtis Yarvin or his politics. I know that he lives near here. That's it. So oh, uh, we so should have interview him to, oh
1: my
0: god yeah,
2: he does we should yeah we yeah, actually he just should, had a birthday yeah. apparently yeah but
1: he's i wouldn't say he's a classical liberal no. okay no
2: he's a monarch yeah yeah it's kind of mutually exclusive opposite. yeah <laughs> it's the opposite thing
1: yeah um, i think it just means you're a liberal
2: <laughs> oh yeah i'm sorry to interrupt you know who it was who called himself a cl- classical liberal it was sargon of Akkad, who was coded oh, right wing yeah. during during Gamergate, but then I happened to be doing some research into Gamergate and watched some of his stuff, and I was like, this guy's not far right at all. But of course he's not, right? Because n- I think we should start with people called were, coded far right. Right. And just talk to them. To whoever's, yeah, whoever's coded, right, coded right. Far, far right. right. Yeah. They're like pro choice and they're for yeah. universal health care and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry, I interrupted. You were going to explain what a classical liberal is. Oh,
1: I think people started using it uh, when they're not they don't identify with the right but they don't identify with the left like the left Mm -hmm. either economically or socially so they do feel like a liberal uh but they're not a liberal in the way that it's been corrupted into this weird Mm. isn't isn't isn't
0: classical liberal like a more elevated way of saying fiscally conservative socially liberal i think like we all, aren't those yeah, the exact same i think people we yeah. all have
2: different definitions because <laughs> i thought that it was aside from the coded far-right thing which obviously is not what it really means but it meant liberal in this in the pre-american sense of liberal as in liberal democracy you believe in pluralism political pluralism free speech all that stuff yeah
1: right yeah
0: i thought that um it's funny that it, we're, we, it keeps coming up it came up i was just also I, I, after i came back from london i flew right to Dallas for a University of Austin meeting. The University of Austin is in Dallas. That makes total mm-hmm. sense, right? So, but they uh, it is. Well, it was at least for this year. I think they're going to be in Austin next year. Okay. But yeah, it just it's yeah the University of Austin in Dallas. Right. The, <laughs> but it sort of come up a lot, and there was some good folks there that you know, my friend Peter Bogosian was there, Mark Lilla, Glenn Lowry, folks who are not easy to put on the left right spectrum. And but I was kind of like you know, it seems like it seems like somebody needs to. Make the case for liberalism again. I have felt that because you're kind of like, well, so much of woke, like wokeism um, incubated within liberalism. You know,
1: you mean the like case for American liberal? Well, something, yeah,
0: or for yeah,
1: or well, for as in know.
2: liberal, conservative, not as in
1: as yeah, like in because we in a way that's different from classical liberalism.
0: Well, I mean, the way the, the, <laughs> like 90s <laughs> liberal, like nineties like liberalism. liberalism. Yeah, well, you, you guys are making the case that I need to make the case. Somebody, <laughs> yes, yeah. or well, You just need to figure out what the hell we're talking about. It was more like. Um, If liberalism gets you, you know, people dying of fentanyl overdose on the streets of San Francisco, and it gets you, um, you know, drugs and surgery for children on autism spectrum, you know, who suffer gender dysphoria, and if it gets you, you know, the invasion of Iraq, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, that's a really, that's not, that's not the same track record that you would have said, as recently as twenty years ago, where you were like liberalism delivered civil rights, women's rights, gay you know gay rights, you know full citizen rights for gays and lesbians, um, employment protections, and all the rest. Well, but to be
2: fair, most liberals were against the invasion of Iraq. I think that yeah, it's what it's bringing us is the the heightened uh, conflict in Ukraine. That's that's
0: true. That's fair. <clears throat> Although to be fair, I think that it's liberal human, liberal humanitarianism that would have been the ideological.
2: Right, but it was neocons who got us into Iraq. Yeah. It's just that the now the liberal counterpart to neoconservatism, conservatism, is humanitarian interventionism. Yeah, and that's
0: where it went wrong. Is that the people that call themselves neoconservatives were actually libertarian humanitarian interventionists? Right. Well,
2: it's more confusing because they also started
0: off as 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 trust super left wing Trotskyists, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There used to be this chart of rock and roll history. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. Did you ever see the chart of rock and roll history? No, but I know
1: where you're going with this.
0: (laughs) It's a super cool. Like it starts like it's like a big wave. You know, it's like these lines, and it like starts with like you know, like blues and jazz, and then Mm -hmm. it's like Elvis, and it's like a little bit bigger, and then you just get into this. You just you can kind of trace it, and you see the genealogy. Mm-hmm. We need that. It seems like for for
2: the left it would be like one of those um, those Charlie whatever his name is and it's always and Phil you know the meme with the question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Char- yeah. It would be just fucking out of control. It's so sectarian. Yeah. But actually the right is probably rivaling the left now for yeah. for the same for the same um, complexity.
0: It'd be like a Jackson Pollock uh um, right painting. <laughs> right. <laughs> be a fun project. Not though. those yeah. fun waves. Um well, I think we can move on to some of the stuff we've been working on, other than to say that we are going to release this great little video, we think, of the time in London. and Yeah,
2: big video. It's like two hours.
0: Big video, and, and we won't say exactly we were under Chatham House rule, but we did have a meeting of free speech advocates in London from around the world. I think it is worth saying that you know two of the people there are potentially facing criminal charges or are facing criminal charges for things they've said and that are not incitement to violence or fraud, mm-hmm. <laughs> things that they express themselves. One person from Germany, one person from Brazil, and we had, um, obviously, the Assange case hovering over it. So this is very real stuff affecting very real people, and we had a nice gathering of people there, and stay tuned because we think that there needs to be a global movement for free speech um, because free speech is under attack in so many countries, and it's under attack right now. You know, It's not some future thing. We're worried that, that we're going to... We're very worried the Irish bill will pass before mm-hmm. we can stop it, and you know Brazil is moving forward and Canada is moving forward. It's like every day I wake up and there's some. I will say the positive things I wake up and somebody sends me something that some politician from some country or some advocate or journalist has tweeted, saying raising the the, the, the raising the alarm. Well, should we move on? Yeah. All right.
2: Speaking of, actually, we could, this is a good segue into it. Okay. WHO piece right? Okay, you Speaking were worried about the global segue, global so let's do speech. a segue. Yeah, right. what's the segue, I know such like? a good segue? When you actually acknowledge Speaking consciously of. that it's a segue. <laughs> but um, the WHO now being one of the um, uh, global nodes of um, of abridging free speech.
0: It's a malign disinformation actor. Right, it's I think an is octopus. the Right. <laughs> we just published yeah. a terrific piece by Phoebe that you'd been working on I'm for a few ph- weeks. I'm Phoebe. I'm Alex Sorry, by <laughs> Alex. Easy to confuse. Wow. <laughs> um, terrific piece by Alex Scutentog that we published on Monday this week, depending on when this podcast comes out. And you've been working on it for a few weeks. Why don't you tell folks why you wanted to do that piece and what the piece argues?
1: Well, we had seen some sensational uh, headlines about uh, the WHO um, taking over countries and countries being forced to cede national sovereignty to the WHO because of the new pandemic treaty. Um, So we wanted to investigate how much of that was actually true. Uh, And it turns out there's a a pretty good deal of truth to it and reason for concern um it's not necessarily that it will end national sovereignty as we know it but there are things in the treaty that are pretty bad that involve uh requiring countries to quote-unquote tackle misinformation and disinformation on social media and there are also Amendments to the sort of pandemic agreement that the WHO has, which will then get enforced by the new treaty, and those amendments um, involve things like mandatory quarantines, mandatory funding um, from different countries, and the WHO also just adopted the EU's cert- digital certificate system, which was used in the EU for their green pass um, to prevent unvaccinated people from crossing borders, and then many countries also use the same green pass system to, pre- uh, to prevent unvaccinated people from going to different public places. So there's a lot going on there in terms of expanding power, uh, expanding surveillance, expanding censorship, especially when this organization made a ton of mistakes over the last three and a half years. And the last thing that they already do all have an effect is a quote-unquote social listening surveillance system that uses AI to monitor social media for misinformation. And... um, When I emailed a representative, they assured me that it was not about misinformation, but the paper that they gave me to prove this was all about misinformation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wrong attachment?
1: Yeah, so I... Stop
0: your reporting, Alex. is crazy.
1: (laughs) There's definitely a reason for concern. It doesn't get... uh, The final draft isn't going to be presented until 2024, so there's still time for it to be changed. I know that there's someone named David Bell who writes for Brownstone Institute who's written really extensively on this, and he used to work at the WHO, and he seems very... Um, troubled by the th- types of things they're trying to do
0: you, you point out in the piece too that uh, the the history of the WHO has these very yeah. idealistic and positive and I think you'd probably agree a, a, a good kind of founding ethos yeah. that's changed can you say a little bit about that change and mm-hmm. what where it started you know where it's at now how it changed and I think also you you pointed out that, there were sort of two other concepts. One is that uh, they sort of viewing people as, or viewing speech as a kind of pathogen. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting.
1: The people who I think have written really well on this are Toby Green and Thomas Fozzie, who we actually met in London. Um, and they both wrote about the history of the uh, WHO in Unheard. And uh, they explained very well, I think, how it was supposed to be, An organization that would empower different nations to build up their health uh, resources from the ground up in a grassroots kind of way and it was about internationalism and now it has become about globalism so it's a top down much more top down now and about uh, restrictions rather than Empowering people.
0: I love that. By the way, I haven't really heard internationalism yeah, contrast to globalism. That's, Tom, that
1: that's Thomas Fozzie that, oh. He he explained that. So um, it's not about you know every nation coordinating and helping each other. It's about an overarching structure um, <laughs> dominating global government. Yeah, it's
0: it's, it's it's top down rather than bottoms up. Yeah.
1: So
2: basically, am I right to understand that under this treaty? The WHO would be able to mandate that Americans get a vaccine in a future pandemic.
1: Um, they would not. Some might say yes. I would say no. But I would say they they would be able to accelerate our vaccine approval. Like man, demand that our vaccine approval process be accelerated. Things like so that. They, like if the FDA but, was
2: taking its time, they'd be able to say you're in violation of this treaty.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Of which the consequences, if you're the United States, are probably z- approaching yeah, zero, it's... whereas if you are Ireland, might right. be very significant.
1: Yeah,
2: but also depending on who's president, the consequences of the mm-hmm. WHO making that right. demand might might incline the president to say, "Yeah, FDA, you need to hurry up," yeah. rather than defy the a treaty.
1: Right, and it, I think if they have the digital certificate system as the one they want to use that might also make it so that they can't say, okay, the US, you have to mandate this, but they might say for international travel, we're making this the standard. So everyone needs to be on this pass system that has and they even said, we want all your immunological records on this system.
0: But, Alex, once they integrate that with a global a central a digital bank currency, <laughs> all good then, right? Yeah,
1: it will make life a lot easier. A lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Everything's in one place. What could go wrong? I mean, that's the thing with
2: all the surveillance stuff. It does make life easier, right? Like, I mean, I went through, you guys went through customs. Did you, would you have the same, same oh, experience Oh, I hate with me? the biometric stuff. But it took, like, it. yes, it's, it's creepy, there. but it also took, like... 30 seconds.
0: Oh, I'm well, I'm a, I use clear. So I mean, I use me, clear I've, been, too. I've been in the biometric okay. system yeah. for, I, I use Clear too. <laughs> Alex, you, don't travel with me. You're going to make me wait. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's cause it's super convenient, you know? And it's like, and it's like you, you, it is, you can easily see the appeal. Just
0: don't do anything wrong. Alex, you'll be fine. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> of living in this frictionless world, you yeah. know, where you can go through customs in 30 seconds and yeah, it just scans your eyeballs and you bypass security and
0: like
1: yeah
2: you know um like i can totally see the appeal for normal people who are apolitical it's
0: fine except for when i engage in climate denialism and then i get slowed up quite a bit right right.
2: (laughs) just shoot starts into your eyeballs as you're getting exactly yeah it's a small electric shock it's it fades
0: (laughs) i mean i thought the other interesting thing about your piece um alex there's a lot in there but one of them was you confronted the spokesperson i guess it was it all over email by the way or did you talk to the guy
1: it was on for email.
0: Yeah, it was really good. I mean it was there's a thing where you were like you pointed out um, that I think you I think the point that you pointed out is that WHO had said that they had no evidence of human to human transmission yeah. in January twenty twenty. And um, and he was like, Well, we've we had hundred and fifty press conferences or something yeah. over the last three years. And and so we sure, I mean, you can find some misinformation in what we said, and you were like, Well, but then you had misinformation and what you said and now you want to enforce uh, uh you want to like you know censor people for misinformation so i'm just
2: picturing oh. as he's reading your email he's like g-u-t-e-n-t-h-e okay on the list
0: <laughs> yeah you're right well, yeah <laughs> good luck you can avoid the biometrics <laughs> yeah. but you just got yourself on the wha <laughs>
2: have reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.